Hello and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Every week we'll cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go any further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to the very kind people who left a message for me on my Podbean account. I can't reply from my account and the app seems to dislike my phone, so I just wanted to say I've seen your messages and I greatly appreciate them. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast. For a while now, I've been mulling over the best way to make money from the podcast, as I love doing this and I want this to be what I do until I potter back across the Great Divide. But I really dislike putting up paid subscriber-only content. I don't feel it's fair to exclude people for financial reasons because I really get that sometimes finding $5 a month is tough because I've been there myself and I don't like railroading people into paying. And as I've said before, my main goal for doing the podcast is to get the information about reincarnation out there. So sticking content behind a paywall goes against my grain. So I will simply say I have a Patreon account and if you feel like supporting me, I'll be extremely grateful. You won't get extra content, but hopefully you'll get a warm and fuzzy glow for making a huge difference to another human being. And with a little luck, I can get more subscribers and quit my crappy typing job and provide more content for you, my amazing listeners. To my Patreon supporters who've subscribed from the very beginning simply because they wanted to support me, you let me know I wasn't wasting my time and that there are other true seekers out there. I can't thank you enough for your support and you have my undying gratitude. So with my decision to have all of my content in the mainstream podcast, I'm going to re-release my first and only short stack that I've done so far here. And from here on in, all of my content will be released here. I'll be doing more short stacks, as there's so many amazing stories out there that shouldn't be missed just because they're short. I hope you enjoy your very first short stack. Researching stories for the podcast can be extremely frustrating. Sometimes you come across a really interesting story, but it's too short. Or there's not enough documentation on the source. Or there's a vagueness to the details that you can never fully pin down. But they remain, nonetheless, fascinating cases that I'd just love to pass on. It came to me one day that they'd make perfect little appetizers, so as I come across them, I'll compile them together into little past live short stacks for you to feast on. I hope you enjoy them. So the first case takes us to New Delhi, India. The reason this case fits into the elusive category is that there's only one source referenced as the source of this story, and that is a book written by Joe Fisher called The Case for Reincarnation. And I can't find any information of any research undertaken by any of the learned men in this field, which was usually done for the strong cases. This case may very well be one of the cases that Ian Stevenson found, or perhaps Elenda Haraldson, as it certainly fits the time period and the feel of their cases, but I can't verify that. However, there is also an intriguing picture that exists of Rena Gupta that adds strong support to the truth of this account, and I will post this picture on my Facebook page for you to see it. So to dive into the case, 
1966, in New Delhi, India, a baby girl was born to the Gupta family, who named her Rina. The little girl was constantly thinking about her past life and the children she left behind. As a toddler, she would wander out onto the balcony of the family home in New Delhi and stare into the crowds, her eyes scanning the people as if she was looking for someone. And the same thing would happen when she was travelling in the family car. She would say things to her family like, I'm looking for my Gorwali and my children. She claimed to have four young children of her own. She wasn't afraid of discussing it with people too and she would make that same comment to anyone who asked her what she was doing. She told her grandmother, I have a Gorwali, which is husband, and my Gorwali was a bad man, he killed me. One day, her mother took her shopping at the market and the little girl disappeared. Worried, her mother searched for her and when she found her, Rena explained that she had not wandered off but was in fact following a woman who used to come to her house. Her insistence of a life lived before in another place stayed with Rena, and she continued to express affection for the children she claimed to have had, at times becoming anguished about being separated from them. She also exasperated her mother greatly at times as she criticised her cooking and the way she did chores around the house, and because her memories persisted, as did her insistence to be rejoined with her past life family, which frustrated and annoyed her mother. The situation was miserable for everyone, and things may have gone on this way indefinitely, but clarity and enlightenment finally arrived in the form of a teaching colleague of Rena's mother. Viendra Kaur had heard of a Sikh family in another part of the city that had a similar tale told from the other side of a young mother of four being murdered by her husband on the 21st of June, 1961. The two stories appeared to match exactly. Viendrakur contacted the Sikh family and spoke to the parents of the murdered woman, Gadeep Kaur. Her father, Sadar Kishan Singh, and his wife were intrigued with a possible link to their murdered daughter and called the Gupta family. Rena was fast asleep when they arrived, but when she awoke, she looked up at the Sings and her face broke into a smile of joy as she cried out, They're my mother and father. The next day, the Sings brought Swarna, Gurdip's younger sister, to visit Rena, who immediately called her by her nickname Sano. Supposedly during the visit, Sorna allegedly tried to give Rena money, to which Rena replied, How can I take money from Sano? She's younger than me. The reason this statement is supposedly significant is because the story claims that an Indian custom is that a younger person cannot give an older person money, and as a young girl, Rena shouldn't have been thinking like a grown woman. I have a bit of a problem with this as it's touted as an important piece of proof, but I can't find any reference anywhere on the net of that being a tradition or culture surrounding money in India. The only tradition that I can find is that money should be given in uneven numerical amounts, as it's considered bad luck to give an even-numbered amount of money. So I would have thought that the custom of only giving money to younger people would be definitely mentioned, as it could be an impolite breach of etiquette and therefore wouldn't be ignored, I wouldn't have thought, particularly if you cite Rena's reluctance to take it from someone younger. But I could very well be wrong on this, and I'd love to hear from you if you can clarify this point for me. If you can shed any light on it, drop me a line at Reincarnation PLR, and I'll add it to a later episode. If it is wrong, it doesn't mean the case is false. It's just that that particular piece of information might be difficult to believe. Back to the story, however. 
Rena stayed in touch with the Sings and on a later visit to their house recognised a photograph of the late Gurdip Kaur, identifying with the image as being a photo of herself back then. Of course, news of such interesting proceedings travelled to the surrounding community and the news travelled to Sajit Singh. On June 21, 1961, Sajit Singh had been the man who had murdered both Gurdip Kaur and her brother. He'd been given a life sentence for the murders but was released after 10 years because of good behaviour. On hearing of Rena's memories, he was drawn to see the little girl who was claiming to be his murdered wife and he paid a visit to the family. Rena, however, had no wish to see him whatsoever, exclaiming, he will kill me again. However, they did meet in 1975, although Rena was extremely reluctant to entertain the visit and understandably was upset that he only received a 10-year sentence in the end. A photo was taken of her at the visit and it shows her perched on the arm of a chair with him sitting beside her. It's a photo that fascinates me. There's an expression on his face looking at the little girl with a hawkish, nonplussed yet shrewd and almost possessive expression and it always puts the hair up on the back of my neck. You can see that Rena really does not want to be sitting there as she perches uneasily on the arm of the chair. I can't believe that someone asked this little girl to sit with a man that she was convinced had murdered her in a past life and although she posed for the photo, by all accounts she bolted off the chair as quickly as she could as soon as the photo was taken. In fact, when Sajit Singh tried to put his arms around her, she physically tore herself away. However, when she met her three daughters and one son, she was ecstatic to see them and she greeted them with the same joy that she'd used to greet her mother and father from her past life. The frustrating thing about discussing some of these older cases is it can be really hard to find out what happened to the people and I can't find out what happened to Rena. I can find no mention of whether she went on to find happiness in her life this time, but I hope she did. Perhaps the fact she disappears without a trace from the massive river of the invasive internet is a good sign that her life was uneventful and peaceful after she worked through her memories and that she went on to live a long and happy life, as we all hope to do. This next past life memory recount is a Jim Tucker case and comes from his book Life Before Life, a scientific investigation of children's memories of previous lives. This case begins in New York City in 1992. John McConnell, a retired New York City policeman, working as a security guard, stopped at an electronics store after work one night in 1992. He saw two men robbing the store and pulled out his pistol. Another thief behind a counter began shooting at him and an exchange of shots occurred between himself and the robbers. As he tried to shoot back, he fell, but even after falling, he got back to his feet and started firing again. But Lady Luck was not on John's side, and he was hit six times. One of the bullets entered his back and sliced through his left lung, his heart, and the main pulmonary artery, which is the main blood vessel that takes blood from the right side of the heart to the lungs to receive oxygen. The damage to his heart and the artery were fatal wounds, and although he was rushed to hospital, Sadly, he passed away. John had been a good dad and had a close relationship with his family. He frequently told his daughter Doreen, no matter what, I'm always going to take care of you. To lose such a loving father must have been devastating to his children. 
But life goes on, and in time, Doreen gave birth to a son that she called William. But William was born with a serious health issue. He was diagnosed with a condition called pulmonary valve atresia, which is a condition where the pulmonary artery doesn't form properly, so the blood can't travel through it to reach the lungs and become reoxygenated. In addition, one of the chambers of William's heart, known as the right ventricle, had not formed properly because of the problem with the valve. William had to undergo several surgeries to repair the malformation, and although he would require medication indefinitely, he has done well and maintained relatively good health. This case is interesting, as William's health issues relate directly to the same injuries that Doreen's father John received the night he was shot. She might not have made the connection as she was going through the worry and drama of watching her son fight for his life, but she certainly must have started to question things when William started talking about his grandfather's life, the man who tragically lost his life years before his grandson was born. One day when William was three years old, he was playing near his mother as she tried to work in her study. The little boy was being naughty and interrupting her all the time, and finally in exasperation she said to him, Sit down or I'm going to spank you. William replied, Mum, when you were a little girl and I was your daddy, you were bad a lot of times and I never hit you. Initially, William's mother was shocked and taken aback by what her little son was saying. But in time, she began to feel comforted that her father had returned to her. One time he asked his mother, When you were a little girl and I was your daddy, what was my cat's name? She replied, You mean maniac. The little boy answered, No, not that one, the white one. Boston? his mother asked. Yeah, William responded. I used to call him Boss, right? William was in fact indeed right. The family had owned two cats named Maniac and Boston, and only John called the white one Boss. He also spoke frequently about being his grandfather and of his death. He told his mother that several people were shooting during the gunfight that killed him, and he asked a lot of questions about it. One day Doreen asked William if he remembered anything about the time before he was born. He said that he had died on a Thursday and went to heaven. He said that he saw animals there and also talked to God. He said, I told God I was ready to come back and I was born on a Tuesday. Doreen was amazed that William mentioned the days, since he couldn't even tell the days of the week without prompting. Deciding to test him, she said, So you were born on a Thursday and you died on a Tuesday. He quickly responded with, No, I died on Thursday night and I was born on Tuesday in the morning. He was correct on both counts. John had indeed died on a Thursday night and William was born on a Tuesday morning. He talked about the period between times at other times too. He said when you die, you don't go to heaven, you go up different levels, here and then here and then here. And he moved his hand up each time as he said it. He said that animals are reborn in heaven too, but that the ones he saw in heaven didn't bite or scratch. In his life, John had been a practicing Roman Catholic, but he had believed in reincarnation and said that he would take care of animals in his next life. His grandson, William, says that he will be an animal doctor and will take care of large animals in the zoo. Doreen says that William reminds her of her father in a lot of ways. He loves books just like his grandfather. When they visit William's grandmother, the little boy spends hours looking at books in John's study just as his grandfather had loved to do. Like his grandfather, he's also good with his hands and has a knack for putting things together, and he can also be a non-stop talker.
And just as her father had said many times before the tragic event that took him away from his family, little William also says, Don't worry, Mum, I'll take care of you. When you look at the extent of casualties that occurred from the two world wars, it's a wonder that we don't have a lot more cases of reincarnation coming forward from people who died in the conflict. Approximately 40 million people died during the wars, with obviously the majority of deaths coming from the military. And I wonder if, like the soldiers who returned home from the wars, the entire experience was so devastating that they tried hard to bury the memories rather than trying to embrace them. I'm not sure, but a haunting recount has emerged from a little boy by the name of Edward Austrian. Edward had always been a sickly child and he suffered frequently from constant sore throats. He was diagnosed with chronic tonsillitis, but when he spoke about the pain in his throat, he would refer to the front left side of his throat as his shot. He also had a very strange phobia and would become really fearful of dark, grey, drizzly, damp days. He'd be filled with anxiety and become very clingy and needy, whining frequently for affection. At first his mother put his comments about his shot down to his childlike way of describing the pain he was feeling from the tonsils, but it was discovered that he had a severe type of cyst in his throat as well as the tonsillitis. Patricia said the cyst was large and the swelling could be seen on the front of his throat. Edward's father Donald was a doctor and was very aware that the cyst in his throat was a type that was normally resistant to treatment and that the cyst had a significant risk of turning into cancer. Something had to be done, and the decision was made to take four-year-old Edward to theatre to remove his tonsils, so that further surgery could then be performed on the cyst. The tonsillectomy was performed without any complications. However, as Patricia sat beside the bed of her little son, Edward, still groggy from the anaesthetic, started telling his mother about his memories as a soldier in the trenches, informing her in graphic detail of the events of his death. He told his mother, My name was James. I was 18 years old in France. We were walking along through the mud. It was damp, it was raining, it was cold, and my rifle was heavy. I remember looking out and seeing fields of trees, and then there was desolation. I heard a shot come from behind, and it went through someone else, hitting me square in the back of the neck and I felt my throat fill with blood. Understandably, Patricia was horrified at his description, and it sent a chill through her. There's no way her little son could possibly have known what life in the trenches was like. I felt a shock of horror myself at the way the little boy described the injury. The description of his throat filling with blood is such a graphic and adult way to describe the wounds that a person shot in the throat would feel. I doubt very much that an adult trying to imagine a wound like that would think to describe their throat filling with blood. As a lot of parents do, the Austins tried to rationalise their son's statements by saying, well, it must have been something he saw on TV or that he read somewhere. But even if a four-year-old child had seen a man getting shot in the throat, would he think to describe blood filling his throat? Would a four-year-old child even be capable of reading a book that would be adult enough to describe a death scene like that? His father, as a medical practitioner, was sceptical and felt that instead he was just hearing the ramblings of a little child imagining things. 
and it was the next sequence of events that defied logic even further. The dangerous and recalcitrant cyst that had been the reason for the surgery in the first place simply disappeared after Edward spoke of his memories. Edward's father knew he had just witnessed something highly unusual. He said, The experiences that I have had with these type of growths is that they never go away. So I was not only pleased but surprised, but I I didn't know what to make of it. My schooling was he's going to develop cancer in that growth. So understandably, he found the outcome a great relief and he was delighted, but it also left him completely baffled. Edward's ear, nose and throat specialist, Stephen Levine, was interviewed for the documentary I saw on this piece and he concurred with Edward's father. Dr Levine stated, I'm not sure what I can make of this story of Edward's remembrance of a past life. I, as a physician and a scientist, can only observe things and then if I can explain them, that's fine. But there are some things I just can't explain and this is one of them. Edward's case is an interesting example as it demonstrates physical manifestation of wounds and scars on the incarnated body that tie in closely to the fatal wounds on the body of the life before, but it also demonstrates the healing power of confronting the trauma of the memories from the past. In this particular case, it is indeed fortunate that the little boy was able to tell his mother of his memories, as it could very well have saved him from suffering from cancer later on in his life. So it could be said that his death in one life saved him from an early death in his next life. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. I hope you enjoyed your first little short stack. I'll return with more tasty morsels soon. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation, or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We'll be back again soon with some more episodes, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose. Mm -hmm.